Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is death? Do you just go poof or is there something beyond? If there is, then what is it? Immortal questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, Paul, and he is also my dad. So today we welcome a new guest and a new friend on an old subject, and uh, we welcome your calls this afternoon. The numbers are 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, or 401-766-1240 here in northern Rhode Island, and we will monitor emails. That's paul at behindtheparanormal.com for emails. Anthony Peake is a British author and researcher who deals with borderline areas of human consciousness. As a child in the Liverpool area of England, he was something of a Renaissance boy, interested in everything. In fact, he felt a need to know everything about everything. While his friends read Batman comics, Anthony was poring over the Man, Myth, and Magic series and books by Jacques Vallée and John Keel. He later studied everything at the University of Warwick and London School of Economics and Social Science, including sociology of religion, the theory of language development, and the art of the Italian Renaissance. In several of his books, he suggests that human consciousness survives the physical death of the body by falling out of time. He calls this process cheating the ferryman. And this, of course, comes from the ancient Greek myth about Charon, of who ferries, <coughs> excuse me, ferries people across a river between this life and an afterlife that I always have found rather dreary. Anthony's books include The Immortal Mind, A Life of Philip K. Dick, The Man Who Remembered the Future, The Demon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, Is There Life After Death, The Infinite Mind Field, The Labyrinth of Time, and his most recent, which I'm just beginning, Opening the Doors of Perception, the Key to Cosmic Awareness, which I have just begun to read and is which and which is already deepening my understanding. Uh, Tony's website, Anthony Peak, that's P-E-A-K-E, AnthonyPeak.com. So Anthony Peak, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Really looking forward to our chat today, guys. Alright, so let's begin with uh, something cheerful, and that is death. So how <laughs> would you describe the popular understanding of death and what is your understanding of death? Well, the popular understanding of death is the cessation of brain activity. And if you look at the definitions of death, the medical definitions of death, it's fairly, well, I was going to say it's fairly precise. It's precise in its terminology, but it's not particularly precise in its terms of application. Uh, in fact, there was, um, there's been various books written over recent years discussing exactly how we know at what point we can say medically that somebody has died. Um, for instance, there was a, a fascinating series of experiments Experiments done uh, by a lady called Jimo Borgigian at the University of Michigan around about three years ago, where they they sacrificed rats. They they killed rats, but they found there was brain activity around about eight to ten seconds after the rat had died. Uh, and a lot of people got hold of this to say this is evidence of the near-death experience. These were these were materialist reductionists, by the way, because what they were arguing was this is evidence that it is it is an epiphenomenon of the brain, and therefore is a perception of the brain. But really, death is the great mystery. And indeed, anybody who is not fascinated, terrified, in uh, fascinated and really interested in exactly what death is, because it's probably with birth the only thing that we all share. So for me, it has been a fascination for, you know, nearly 50 years now. Um, and as I'm approaching, you know, within the next few decades, I will be facing the Great Curtain as well. So it's something of great fascination to me. Hmm. So, well, go ahead, Ben. So what is 
I, I guess that that sort of answers the popular perception. But what is your understanding of death? Okay, in terms of my hypothesis, yeah. I guess. In terms of cheating the ferryman. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, che- cheating the ferryman is expounded over my first book. Um, is the life after death the extraordinary science of what happens when you die? But in a nutshell, um, what I I suggest in the book, and I know from from Paul's books that this is something that will probably resonate with him, is that I take the neurology, I take neurochemistry, and I take quantum physics as my starting point as to exactly what may happen at the point of death. Now, in Is There Life After Death, uh, nominally called ITLAD by my readers around the world, by the way, which is the initials of the, the book, um, and the cheating ferryman hypothesis, hypothesis takes takes as its starting point the, the evidence that we have received from people who have had near-death experiences. And in fact, the cheating the ferryman hypothesis was first put forward in an academic paper, which I had published in the, the journal of the International Association of Near Death Studies, which was edited by uh, Professor Paul Grace, uh, Professor uh, Bruce Grayson of the University of Virginia. And what I suggest is, is that if you look at the near-death experiences, there are two or three things that are regularly recorded in what's called the Grayson Scales. And the Grayson Scales are those, uh, the, 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 the typologies and the way in which doctors and medical people will interpret exactly what a near-death experience is. And three of the Grayson Scales include a sensation of, of time slowing down, a sensation that or a perception that there is a presence that is around you, and thirdly, and most importantly, something called a panoramic life review, the classic my life flash before my eyes. Now, if we take all three of these and we look at them from the history of uh, perception, from the history of neurology and from the history of, of the way in which we perceive the universe, the way in which the brain functions, we can draw some quite interesting conclusions. For instance, we know that the slowing down of time perception that takes place at the point of death is facilitated by uh, an, endog- an endogenous substance called glutamate. It's a neurotransmitter in the brain. And at the point of death and during times of extreme stress, this neurotransmitter slows down the perception of time. Again, most of the listeners here will be aware of this sensation when you are given bad news, when you're in a car crash, but particularly when you are in accidents or situations where you know in advance that your death is fairly inevitable. Because what tends to happen under these circumstances, and it is regularly reported, is that time seems to slow down. Now, this is brought about by something called excitotoxicity in the brain. Effectively, what is taking place is the glutamate is flooding the brain and it's actually killing off the neurons. But what it brings about is this literal falling out of time. Now, people have cited examples whereby in this state they have they have been away for for, for days, months, weeks and even years. Now, if you take that into account and then you put into that the argument and the scenario that um at the point of death, we have what's called a panoramic life review. We start to get some interesting ideas put forward here. Because if in a, a, an NDA, or what I call an RDE, a real death experience, what happens is that you begin to die, but you immediately start falling out of time. Now, in my, my third book, The Labyrinth of Time, I discuss in great detail the neurology, the neurobiology of, of time perception, the philosophy of time perception. And the way in which time is one of the greatest mysteries 
Now, as you guys will appreciate, um, the great Catholic theologian St. Augustine, when he was asked what time was, he made the very famous statement where he said, if I don't think about time very deeply, I understand it completely. But as soon as I start to think about it in any detail, it becomes the biggest mystery ever. Because, of course, time is a huge mystery to us. It is a subjective experience. Time is the only thing I know of that's measured by itself. You can only ever have a minute or a minute or an hour of an hour, but you have a pound of apples. You know, you can measure the length of your desk or your computer screen by using something else as a metric, you know, a ruler or something like that. But you can never, ever objectively measure time perception. Now, we know from research done by some of the really famous hypnotists over the years and the neurologists over the years, we know that time perception can expand given certain circumstances. We know, for instance, that when um, somebody is in a state of um, high temperature, when they're, they're suffering from a fever, we know that time seems to expand then. Time perception also takes place when people take um, entheogenic substances or psychod psychedelic substances such as ketamine, DMT, LSD, even uh, cannabis. These all seem to extend the subjective understanding of time. So imagine the scenario, you're starting to die, and suddenly your time expands rapidly. Now, in a near-death experience, it is reported that your life flashes before your eyes. People either feel they see a series of images of their life, or they see a literal, super-fast review of their life. Sometimes they can drop into particular incidents in their life. When they do drop into these incidents, the one thing they suggest time and time again, which is very intriguing, is that they will go back to a point in their past whereby they will not only appreciate and perceive their own perceptions at the time or a particular incident, but the perceptions of others around them. For example, yeah. as one of one of my associates um, had uh, a near-death experience where he was drowning in the sea off um, the south coast of England, and he was dying of hypothermia. He fell into the sea. It's a long story, but he fell into the sea. And while he was in this hypothermic state and he started to die, he found himself catapulted to a point in his childhood where he was running along the road, and he ran into the street and was hit by a car. He was in his own body running along in this long-forgotten memory, and then suddenly he's out of his mind again, and suddenly he's looking down at a woman's leg in a car, and there's a ladder in her tights, and she's fiddling with her finger, and he realises the woman in the car, because she suddenly looks up and sees a child run across in front of her. He was then in the mind of the woman who was who knocked him over. Now, clearly, you know, I know that Paul in his books discusses this, the idea of the singularity of consciousness, the idea that at a deeper level of consciousness, we are all, all one consciousness experiencing ourselves subjectively. So the fallout of time, you have this kind of oceanic experience. Of course, it was something that um, uh, Professor Book wrote about many years ago and various other individuals. So the oceanic experience has been discussed many, many times. So you fall out of time. You fall out of time, but in a real death experience, you are catapulted back to the moment of your birth. And you relive your life in a three-dimensional recreation of your life that is literally a minute-by-minute -minute recreation of your life. And the, the main point in the book that I think is the most powerful evidence for this hypothesis is something called déjà vu, or déjà vécu, already lived. Because this is 70% of the population of the planet will at one time in their life experience a déjà experience.
It is completely inexplicable, and anybody that turns around and says that it is explicable and it's to do with the two uh, hemispheres of the brain not communicating with each other should really start researching researching far better than this. Because if you go into most books on psychology and you go into most websites, they will glibly cite what's called the Efron Hypothesis, which was put forward in 1961 by Robert Efron, a psychologist. And basically he said that it was to do with the confusion of processing of of stimuli between the dominant and non-dominant hemispheres. This only works for for eyesight, by the way. It doesn't. It only works for vision. It does not work for hearing. And yet, Akira O'Connor, a researcher at the University of Leeds over here in the UK, recently discovered that individuals who are congenitally blind, that are born blind, have have déjà déjà entendu, which I think is already already heard. And they have déjà experiences to do with hearing. Now, the neurological pathways are completely different for for sight as they are for uh, hearing. So it's out of the question. I argue that the experience is exactly what you think it is. You have lived this moment before and you are remembering the moment. And this is the clue to the idea of cheating the ferryman. Very quickly, why I call it cheating the ferryman, the ancient Greek myth of Charon the boatman. And, you know, what happened was, you know, when you died, they put a little coin called an obelisk underneath your tongue. They would, That was there so you could pay the ferryman, so you could go over the sticks and go to Hades. I think there's truth, as Paul says in his book, in his book, Turning Home, the, these myths are deeply, there's messages within myths. They're from earlier civilizations and earlier understandings and earlier philosophies. So if we argue that the particular myth of Charon comes back to us from the pre-Socratics, we've got some interesting things here, because in the myth, what people less lesser know about this is that when the individuals got to Hades, they were given a choice. They could either stay in Hades or they could drink from the river Leith, L-E-T-H-E, which was the river of forgetting. And if they drank the waters of the Leith, they were they had their memories wiped clean and they get went back across the 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 the, 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 the Acheron actually, which was the technical river, and they were reborn again to relive their life again, completely with their memories wiped clean. I think this myth, like all myths. I think there was a Catholic theologian many years ago, an American, and I can't think of his surname now, wrote an amazing book about the myths of religion. It was called The Myth of Religion. And in this, he argues that no, that these things are myths, they're symbols, but they're symbols of greater truths. So here we have the idea that we live our lives again. And at the end of the second life, we live our again and again and again. Now, I've upgraded this now. And my new book, I argue that it is to do with the fact that the universe we live within is a brain-generated hallucination. Not only is it brain-generated, but it's actually external to us because consciousness is not embodied in the brain. Consciousness, the brain is a receiver, and therefore everything we perceive is part of a huge, huge computer program, for want of a better term. Uh, and the idea, Egon Musk recently came out with a statement that we're living within hallucination. This can be tied into the near-death experience. It can be tied into deja vu. It can be tied into a lot of things. So that, in a nutshell, is something I normally take two or three hours to explain. <laughs> ben, uh, I think we need to do more than a show with with uh, Anthony. I think we need to do a series of feature films. We're, ba- we're barely scratching the surface. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, we I are, don't even know. We, we are. I, uh, my we script are. is already filled with notes. Uh, I, all right. Let, let's uh, make an attempt to uh, to make to make a dent here. Time 
Anthony, the notion of time is central, I should think, to the any notion of falling out of time or anything we've discussed, subjectivity versus objectivity. One of the things we say as, as, a, as a bottom line basic principle that we operate on is that more or less the, the Einstein, Einstein's idea that time essentially does not exist uh, as a linear objective reality. Okay, it's a function pretty much of our consciousness, and uh, Professor Amit Gatswami gets into that, sort of the, the mystic slash physicist and things of this kind. You, um, how, what is your understanding of just time? Because as I say, everything we've discussed sort of orbits that that concept. What is what is time in your understanding? Time, well, time can be argued in various ways, can't it? You know, time, again, I spend 380 pages of my book, The Labyrinth of Time, trying to explain this, and you end up as confused as you've started, because <laughs> uh, I am like St. Augustine in this particular principle. But I, I will try and make an effort. Time, as far as modern science is concerned, is basically the second law of thermodynamics, isn't it? You know, that effectively everything moves from its entropy, everything moves from a state of order to a state of disorder. And the process whereby something moves from order to disorder is entropy. And the more entropy, the more disorder. And you can never go backwards with, with entropy. You can never actually move back. You can smash an egg, but you can never put an egg back into position. But this is something that we confuse with time. This is all it is, is that is something that we measure this sensation of time in, you know, that many writers have talked about this for many, many years. For instance, Nietzsche talked about the eternal recurrence and the eternal return. Lots of, for instance, I in my in my first book, I cite an example that time is related directly to gravitation and the fact that the stronger the gravitational field, the slower time goes. I think it's slower or I can never remember whether it's faster or slower, but effectively the analogy still stands true. So the idea would be that technically your head ages at a different time to your feet, because as Einstein said, there's a direct relationship between time and space. And the time dilates, time can dilate, you know, you get closer to the black hole, you get to the Schwarzschild radius around a black hole, time, time stretches out. But of course, time is relative to the observer. So effectively, if I am traveling and chasing uh, a light beam and I shoot off at 99.9% of the light speed chasing after the light beam, the light beam will still move away from me at 186,000 miles a second relative to my own position. Whereas relative to an observer who is observing me chasing the light beam, I will be seen to be traveling with the light beam. So this means effectively that time is a completely subjective construct. It is something to do with how the brain functions. It makes sense of how things happen. But there could be an argument that there is a timeless state, what the Gnostics would call a pleroma, which is outside of our normal perceptual field, and that time is part of the program. We know time dilation takes place in one of my books. I cite a dream that Alfred Maury, the, 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 the comparatively famous French psychiatrist, had uh, in the 1890s, where he dreamt 
that he had been involved in the French Revolution. And he dreamt that he was with Marat and, and Robespierre and everybody else involved in the revolution. He then falls foul of that group and he has a show trial. He stands up and he defends himself in the show trial. He then gets found guilty. He's taken through the streets of Paris in a tumbrel. He's taken to the place de la Bastille. He then makes a long speech underneath the guillotine and he then puts his head down. And as he does so, he felt a bang on the back of his head and he was woken up. It was the headboard of his bed had fallen onto the back of his head. Hmm. Now, that means either one of two things. Either it means that his brain was able to back-create a whole dream to define a stimulus that was about to happen in the future, or something completely non-understandable within our old worldview. But we know there are certain experiments that are done in terms of the subjectivity of time. For example, there's something called the cutaneous rabbit effect that... Uh, without going into detail, because we haven't got time, but you look up the cutaneous rabbit effect, it shows that we effectively can monitor the um, the immediate future of our perceptions. We know, for instance, that um, Dean Radin did a series of experiments with Dick Bierman a few years ago, whereby they were able to flash a series of photographs in front of somebody, a subject, and the photographs all had kittens and sunsets and everything else, but interleavened within these photographs were photographs of horror. And what they did was they attached a device that could actually measure the conductivity of the skin. And when we are stressed or something disturbs us, the skin conductivity goes up. Most people, when they did this test, the skin conductivity would go up immediately before the photograph was flashed in front of them. Now, this effectively means one of two conclusions, and it can only be one of two conclusions. Either we can monitor the immediate future, and precognition is a possibility, which means our understanding of time is different, or we buffer information. The brain buffers information as a, as a computer does when it downloads a movie or a film for you when you're watching it live. It buffers the information and presents it to you. But either concept suggests something very peculiar about the brain, because if the brain can buffer information, external sensual information, it effectively means it records it. And if the brain can record and it records everything, it means it can download that information to somewhere else, which means we record every perception we have through our lives. And this will be the argument of how I believe the whole idea of my cheating the ferryman hypothesis works. So time is a huge, huge mystery. And any scientist that turns around and says he understands it is lying because they <laughs> don't. Yes. You know, there's, there's hubris all over the place at the moment. You know, we've got dark energy, dark matter. We've got the hard problem of consciousness of David Chalmers, all these things. But the, 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 the you, I think, Paul, you have a wonderful term for these people. Um, I can't remember what you call them now, but it really, really wonderful. And it's true. Oh, the skepticemics? Skepticemics, yeah, that, I was yes. going to use that. I think that is absolutely wonderful. Well, you have, because you it can is. use it any, anywhere in any manner you wish. I'll put a little copyright Eno on the bottom, <laughs> you know, so I can probably do that from don't there. Think so it, I, I, I will reference. But, uh, but that's my position on this, if that makes sense. It, it makes perfect sense to me, Ben. Uh, no, def definitely. This is, I'm trying to wrap my brain around, around these, these concepts and trying to word them into questions, but I mean, explaining the unexplainable is always hard to explain. Yes, and, and, and expressing the inexpressible as well. Yes. Uh, Tony, let's, uh, let's move to a slightly different layer on this. We have a break in a few minutes, but, uh, what, what is it, Josh? You're looking at me with great trepidation. Okay. Uh, the, there's a question, of course, that we all receive, people in this field, and that's, what will happen to me when I die? 
I usually respond, I don't know about you, Ben, I usually respond with a, another question, where were you before you were conceived? Mm. How would you answer that question in light of everything we've said so far in the show, Tony? Okay, I would argue that before you were perceived, you didn't exist, and after you die, you don't exist for one very, very pertinent reason, because the time is your time. So you are the observer, you are the person collapsing the wave function Hmm. of your particular existence. As we know from quantum physics, and we know from the EPR paradox of 1937, the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment, I know that you mention Alain Aspect's 1981 experiment in your book, The Paris Experiment, which proved the John uh, John Bell's inequality. We know that um, the way in which the way in which we perceive reality and the way in which um, subatomic particles behave, because again, you know, we have known since the 1930s that a subatomic particle, when it is not observed, is a, a statistical wave function. Max Born is the wave function. It is only when it is observed or measured that it becomes a point particle. But this gets stranger uh, because have we got time for me to just very quickly go on aside now, very quickly? We have about a minute, but we can come okay. back to that. In a minute, in a minute, the guy called Anton Zeilinger at the University of Vienna has been doing a series of experiments over the last 10 or 15 years whereby he's actually done the wave particle duality mystery um, with large, large molecules such as buckyballs, which have 60 atoms in them. These are the things that make up the reality around us, and these things are brought into existence by the act of observation of a conscious mind. All right, here we go. Well, uh, why don't we take our break? Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on uh, WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our amazing guest, Anthony Peake, who, in our opinion, is a major theological figure. We will be right back. It's your business. The health of our economy, the strength of our businesses affects every individual, every family. I'm Frank Prisnitz. Each Thursday, we'll visit with leaders to discuss important business and economic issues. Join me Thursdays at 4 p.m. on WOON. It's your business because it is. Okay, we're back, and it's Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. On WON1240 in New England's Blackstone Valley, and we uh, have a number of charities the show has adopted, and we will mention those during our announcements uh, toward the end of the show. But right now, let's get back to our conversation with uh, Anthony Peake. Um, it's really amazing so far, and uh, we're talking about really the subject of, of death. So, Anthony, uh, given everything we've said in the first half of the show... How would you interpret, and we often, as I'm sure you do, have to deal with uh, popular uh, New Age concepts uh, or even very ancient concepts such as reincarnation. From the point of view you've expressed, how would you answer someone who asked you, what is reincarnation? What's it all about? Okay, again, I've, I've written about this. I wrote a book with Irving Laszlo called The Immortal Mind, which was published by Inner Traditions, which I think are located quite nearby you guys, I think. Yeah, Rochester, uh, Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Inner Traditions published the book, this particular book. And in the book, Irving and I swapped, you know, we, he, he approached me saying that it was quite amazing. He turned around and he said that uh, I was the one person on the planet that he thought he, he wanted to write this book with, which is, you know, Irving Laszlo has been nominated for the Nobel Prize. Oh, yeah. So it's a great honor. Um, But reincarnation is 
you can get over the reincarnation issue, particularly the past lives and the, the idea of the case of Bridie Murphy and the various other cases that we all know about as people who've been interested in this subject. If you look at it in the idea that there is a field of information, which, which Irving Lasso calls the Akashic field, which is effectively the zero-point field, and this informational field contains digital information that contains everything that has been and everything that possibly can be. And I know in your work you point out and you discuss the Everett's Many Worlds interpretation, but there is a new iteration of this called the top-down hypothesis, which has been put forward by Stephen Hawking and Frank Hartle of CERN. And in this, they argue that um, from the first moments of the Big Bang, everything that could ever possibly be is already encoded in there. And the act of observation or whatever we like to call it collapses the reality of that particular situation or scenario. Now, if that is the case, it means that outside of ourselves, the, the program that is running the reality, the matrix or whatever we want to call it, contains everything that possibly can be. Of course, you know from Eastern religions, we know it's Maya. We know it's the idea of the concept of Brahmin. We look at um, um, Ayodhvata Vedanta. They have the concept of, of everything that there is. There's the Kabbalah idea of the Orain Sof, the idea that there's the background to everything. And this background to everything contains everything. Now, this effectively suggests, and this is where things could be very interesting for you guys, is um, I've just contributed a chapter to a new book on pandeism, which will be out in January. And in that, I, I apply the computer analogy and the simulation analogy to the idea that we are, as uh, Bill Hicks said, one single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. So we are, in fact, embodied elements of God, for want of a better term, experiencing a reality that we experience in the way we need to experience it in order for us to develop. So therefore, we can attune into the greater something, the collective unconscious, as Jung called it, which we can apprehend in dreams, in sleep, in REM intrusion states. Um, we can we can appreciate this. And in which case, when we do that, we can pick up memories, the collective racial memory. So therefore, I can be taken back hypnotically to a time in, say, the 1640s, say, in the, um, the English Civil War. And I could visualize and be part of that because that is part of the program. So I can attune into that. It doesn't necessarily mean that I was, as Anthony Peake, reincarnated from somebody there, because the idea that I am an individual consciousness, again, as you touch in your book, Paul, I, I believe I'm an individual point consciousness, but in fact, I'm not. It's my ego that believes I'm a point consciousness. Yes. It's, it's ego driven. Whereas I'm not that at all. I am part of a greater something that you are and everybody that's listening to this show are at a deeper level of reality. And again, it's something that Professor David Bohm talked about, his implicate and explicate orders. So we have a lot of scientific evidence to say that this is the way we should go. So we have collective memories. For example, they can't explain why little birds, newly hatched birds, because I think all life is part of this. It's not just species specific. You know, Absolutely. it is much wider than that. Little birds, when they're born, when they come out of the egg, they, within a few minutes, you can fly a cardboard cutout of a hawk over the birds and they will cower. In this country, and I know all around the world, people have an irrational fear of snakes. Now, as a Brit living in an island that, you know, we only have one snake that's poisonous, the adder. 
and that's not deadly poisonous. And yet we all have irrational fears of these things. These are deep-rooted racial memories that are probably carried in our DNA, that carried through the human genome. They are part of us. But the human genome is us. We are our genes, and we are existing within some form of simulation, for want of a better term, which could explain so many of the things. Paul, in your book, your model of the idea of, of positive entities and negative entities and the parasitic arguments you put forward rings so many bells for me. I was reading your book nodding like mad and saying, wow, this guy's got it. This guy's really got it because you have. You know, the synergy between what you're saying and what I'm saying is very, very profound. Proud of you, Dad. Th- thank you, uh, Tony. As uh, Mark Twain said, I can live six months on one good compliment. So, uh, b- before we continue, though, you, you uh, the least I can do, please uh, tell us uh, right now, before we burn up this hour, about your website, your books, uh, where people can get them, where people can find out more about you. Okay. My books, books are everywhere. Um, I mean, it went crazy last week. I was on Coast to Coast. Oh, yeah. Well, we're, on, we're on Coast to Coast tonight, so hopefully ours will go yeah, crazy. Yeah, I heard too. this. Yeah. I heard this. Absolutely. Isn't that a synchronicity beyond all synchronicity? Somebody told me on Facebook about that, so good luck with that. Thank when you. you get over the adverts, there's all the adverts which really drive you crazy. But, but my work is, is basically I, my website is anthonypeak.com. My books, you can order them in bookshops. You can order them online. You can you can get them anywhere. You can order them directly from my website, which really helps me because I have deals with my various publishers that I can sell signed copies off my website. Um, I'm on very active on Facebook. I have a huge community on there, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger day by day, and it's international. And we're so part of it. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's getting big. This is becoming something. It's a real undercurrent at the moment that the people in the know are really starting to buy into what I write about, because I think it's like a huge Venn diagram. You know, we are all pursuing the same things. That You know, there are many paths to the top of the mountain, but the view from the top is still the same. And we are doing this in different directions. You're coming from a very interesting theological point of view, which I very much sympathize with. I can see your point of view, though. We have the Gnostics coming. We have various scientists I work with. I've got neurologists, consultant neurologists. I've got psychiatrists. I've got astronomers astrophysicists we with all of us are working together on this because this makes sense mm-hmm. okay and it, it's an explain it's an explanator of everything now my new book opening the doors of perception is the summation of everything i've written over the last 10 years and it's pulling it together in fact my publisher watkins are so delighted by this book they've already already given me an advance to write the sequel which will be through the doors of perception, which I'll be really looking into the areas that you discuss. You know, if if the brain is an attenuator, as Henri Bergson said, and as Aldous Huxley said, and that in fact it takes out information from the information field, it means that reality is far broader than us. I call it I call it um, uh, sort of electromagnetic chauvinism. The idea that because we see the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that is so wide, you know, it's an inch in the terms of the length of the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River was the electromagnetic spectrum running from Minnesota down to the Gulf of Mexico. The uh, What we see would be an inch of the river about 18 miles south of Hannibal, Missouri, and we think we can see everything. Mm-hmm. So if it's much wider... Certain people can open the doors of perception, can go run round the attenuator of the brain and can perceive a broader reality. 
Now, if there's a broader reality, that means that broader reality has things in them, sentient intelligences that exist within that broader world. And these sentient intelligences are the other side of the door of perception. Indeed, um, the foreword of the book, as you know, is written by Whitley Strieber. Mm -hmm. And Whitley is fascinated by my model because he thinks it can explain a lot of his experiences. And, you know, Whitley had his experiences with the Greys in upstate New York many years ago. He argues that my ideas and my Damon Adelon dyad, as I call it, can possibly explain a lot of these. So, you know, what exactly are greys? And the new book, you know, I, I know you mentioned John Keel. I'm a huge fan of John Keel, Jacques Vallée, mm-hmm. the Mothman stuff, Keel's um, book, um, Project Trojan Horse. These books were powerful, and I believe these entities have been with us since year dot. They are elementals. They are part of our mental state. And as you say, they thrive on energy and on negative energy. And I think that model is a very, very powerful one. Well, there we are. Ben had a question. Well, I, I, I guess this sort of goes back to the overview of time as we know it and the death experience, which I'm going to, I'm going to start it off with a first portion of the question, then a second portion. So is the experience, the experience is obviously physical, but when you fall out of time, is that a physical experience or spiritual or is it something entirely different? Or both? It's, it's entirely different because what we're doing there is we're falling into the trap of dualism. We're falling into the trap that there are two things in reality. There is spiritual something, an amorphous something that cannot be measured, doesn't have extension in space, and cannot be measured by our scientific instruments. Then there is the kind of physical solid universe, the materialist reductionist universe that we can reduce to understand it in, in, in the way in which science has worked over the last, since the Enlightenment, and very, very effective in doing so. But... We need to realize that, for instance, I use the analogy here, that there are two prevailing forms of science at the moment. There is quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and there is uh, relativity. The two of them run on parallel lines. If you plug the maths that you use in quantum physics into the maths that you use for relativity, you get nonsense. So clearly there is another reality that is beyond relativity and quantum physics. And I argue that is a duality. I'm a non-dualist. So in which case I argue that there's a deeper reality where there's a singularity, where there is something where they can all be explained. And the same comes with the trap we fall into, the Cartesian trap of the idea that there's a little homunculus in your head that is looking out at the world. But, of course, that little homunculus has to have eyes and ears and everything else. So you get an infinite regress. And that was the major criticism that people have said about Cartesian dualism. You know, and I know certain philosophers have destroyed it over the years. But if you take it down a level and you say that the basic of basis of reality is information, non-physical digital information, and that the physical reality we perceive and the process by which we perceive that reality are part of the same thing, we get over the problem. We get over the problem of Chalmers' Chalmers hard problem of how inanimate matter comes together, how atoms can come together with electricity to create self-referential consciousness and indeed can create a consciousness that wonders what atoms are. That's impossible. It's a hard problem. We're not even at the first base of understanding that. But if we go back and say that the physical and non-physical world, spirituality and the physical world, are both elements of a deeper something, as I said, what um, David Bone called the implicate order. We are the explicate order, but there's an implicate order. This goes back to Einstein's idea 
of of um, the idea that there the, there is another reality deeper that we cannot perceive. Now we know that, for instance, in terms of levels of size, the difference between the smallest thing we can understand and measure, and the Planck scale, which is the smallest possible thing, there's a factors of something like 16 powers. So there's a whole area that we do not understand. Dark matter we don't understand, dark energy we don't understand. These are the things that are giving us clear and precise signs that our scientific paradigm has to change and it has to be revolutionary change. And the way we do that is we accept that people have extraordinary experiences. Instead of actually binning them because they can't be explained by science, we bin the science because the science can't explain the experiences. Exactly. Well, this this raises the entire question of of what's generally called local versus non-local. In other words, uh, within and, and we know some scientists, and as as you say, Tony, they're they're um, sort of wrapped up in their own fields, and they don't talk to each other very often. With silo some thinking, yeah, yeah, silo thinking, precisely. And I'm thinking of behavioral science, which is pretty much based on materialism, and it, it does have practical uses and practical effects that are good. But on the other hand, uh, it does not consider quantum effects, non-locality, things of this kind. And what we mean, um, everybody, just for the audience, by, by local versus non-local is local is, is uh, what we call, Ben, the island theory, right? You know, that, that everything that we are effectively is inside us, inside our brains, uh, the, the homunculus, as, as, as uh, Tony was, was referring and uh, the non-locality is something that physicists of consciousness and others have begun to explore, and that's the idea that uh, even Jung got into, which is the collective unconscious. The idea that that these uh, that perhaps our memories, imagination, and a certain amount of knowledge, or maybe everything, is outside of our physical structure. That sort of thing. So that being said, uh, Tony, how what does this thinking do to the notion of locality? Uh, well, we. Well, the thing is, Paul, we, 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 we know that non-locality is, is a fact. Yes. You know, it is not, you know, you talk around to most people, naive realists as they are actually known within the field of consciousness studies, the idea that there's a quid pro quo between what I see and what is actually out there. That is wrong. We know, for instance, that if you entangle two subatomic particles and you put them apart at great distance and you do one thing to one particle, the other one will, will react immediately. We know this from the Alain aspect and the Dalabard experiment in 1981, the Paris experiments. We know, as I said, from the work that um, uh, um, Anton Zeilinger is doing. These suggest that there is something deeply interesting about space. That is what we mean by location. You know, I'm physically here and you are physically over there in the States. So in between us is something called space. But the question, as Ernest Mack argued, that if you didn't have objects in space, would space disappear? In other words, is space something that holds everything together? Does it have an existence outside of the objects that are within it? And this is a deeply philosophical point, but a very, very powerful one. So in which case, if objects can communicate immediately, I, I heard a few years ago that Richard Feynman, one of the best Quantum physicist America had ever generated the mm. guy that did the O-rings yeah. for for the was it Challenger disaster? Yes. Um, he said that one of the explanations for non-locality is that there is one electron moving at infinite speed, and we see that electron because it's going backwards and forwards in time. We see it as trillions and trillions of electrons, but in fact, it's just one. 
So in which case, if you do one thing to one electron, the other one will immediately react because it is the same particle. Now, this is reducing things down to a very, very interesting idea. Now, I did a, an event in London about eight or nine years ago at the National Theatre, and I was on stage with um, one of the top young professors of quantum physics. Um, and we were discussing at the University of Manchester over a coffee, the mysteries of quantum physics. And this guy turned around to me and he said, of course, we know that every electron in the universe knows the location of every other electron. You say that to the man in the street <laughs> and you say it's new age woo-woo. It's not. Tell us it's about. not new age woo-woo at all. The, 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 the worldview that the man in the street has and the, the, the guys that think that the kind of stuff that we do is crazy, they're the ones that are not being scientific. They're the ones that are not reading their new scientist and their scientific American. Indeed. You discussed earlier something that really made our eyebrows go up because we, I began running into it in the 1970s. We refer to it as the flashing nexus. And I've never written about it until uh, uh, it'll be in the third edition of Faces at the Window, which is coming out soon. There'll be a chapter on that. But I began running into it in the 70s when a man said, you know, I was on the operating table. And what he was describing was not, didn't strike me as a near-death experience, but he uh, suddenly had a a shift of consciousness and he was the doctor. Matter of fact, he he, um, commented rather jocularly that fortunately he had all the doctor's knowledge in him because he was in the middle of operating on himself. and then the, the, all of a sudden he was the nurse, and then he was someone outside the hospital walking by, and he said these, these were very quick experiences. And you are one of the few, Tony, who has mentioned running into phenomena of that kind. Uh, what do you think is happening there? I think it's, it's glimpses of the, the oversoul. It is glimpses of the collective unconscious well no because by argument's sake the Jungian collective unconscious is unconscious but the fact that as Bill Hicks said we are one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively mm-hmm. and like this that. works imagine a scenario I mean Philip K. Dick wrote about this as well because Philip K. Dick was quite interesting he was a phenomenal man I mean it was mm-hmm. amazing to write the biography of Philip K. Dick I was so honoured to do so but the idea that posit the idea as, as a theologian you know, posit this idea, you know, that, that God is everything. God is everything that there possibly can be. It's the Orain Soth, you know, the Kabbalah idea, Brahman. Mm. And whatever he or she is, it needs something to do. So what it does, it creates a reality populated by sentient beings, all of which are emanations of itself. And it can then embody itself as any one of those creations, or all of them, or collectively groups of them. And it can embody itself, and can experience, and what it then does, it it suffers from amnesia, literal amnesia, it forgets who it is. And one of Philip K. Dick's novels, The The Divine Invasion, had a character called Manny, and Manny is God, who has embodied himself in the world and has made himself forget he's God in order to experience everything that can possibly be experienced. So in which case, if you do that and you see that worldview, you suddenly start to see the world in quite a different way because we are all collectively, it's as if God within us is trying to evolve us as, as, as beings collectively to become a singularity. 
Now, again, you talk in your book, and it's something I talk about in my latest work, is the Omega point of Taihar de Chardin mm-hmm. and the idea that we are moving towards an Omega point. But, of course, you get people like Ray Kurzweil and Kurzweil's ideas on the idea of uh, post-humanism and the way in which we are moving towards a kind of a non-physical humanity that will meld with machines, for want of a better term. But I think it's more complex than that. I think we will meld with the non-physical, and we will move on as a collective consciousness into whatever it is that we need to move on to. Of course, you can never prove this. How can you ever prove it? But I was talking to a scientist recently, um, Professor Bernard Carr, who's an astrophysicist, and I did a talk at the British Society, the Society for Psychical Research in London, Mm -hmm. and Bernard was in the audience, and he came over to me and he said, there must be ways that we can work experimentally to prove your hypothesis. And I thought, wow, here I have a professional scientist suggesting that there must be ways that we can work on this together. Absolutely. I, I just have to correct one thing you said, Tony. I, I'm I'm not a theologian. My degree is in philosophy, though I did spend a lot of time in seminaries and study theology. The term theologian implies a certain uh, holiness that Ben's mom will be happy to tell you that I don't have. Right? So, but but anyway, uh, philosopher, I'll accept. <laughs> you're not Pad- you're not Padropeo then. No, 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 not not yet. Anyway, um, <laughs> right. Just in our last few moments, and we only have a few. Um, I just wanted to submit. So some experiences that I had uh, with dissociative identity disorder, not personally, I hope, but uh, working in psychiatric hospitals as a seminary student and as a grad student in psychology, uh, dissociative identity disorder being popularly known as multiple personalities. I just got the impression that, that these people, very often judged um, schizophrenic, uh, but with the most knowing looks in their eyes, uh, mm. would actually have um, perhaps be living real lives or or really be in touch with part of the collective unconscious uh, that is not so unconscious to them, points of awareness. Uh, It just just struck me as such, and I've addressed groups of psychiatrists on this, and very often, you know, because in public the uh, eyes will turn red and steam will come out of the areas, but at the end they'll come up to me individually, uh, rather large numbers of them, and say I've often suspected the same thing. Uh, But if I mention that or if if I espouse that opinion, I'll lose my job. So, yeah. so uh, what say you on the notion of being many different people at once, you know, taken from the idea of the uh, uh, heading toward the Omega Point or uh, the non-existence of the individual as we understand it? Well, Disassociative Personality Syndrome is something I've featured in many of my books um, because I think it's an element of what I would call my Damon Eidolon, Damon Eidolon hypothesis. But effectively, funnily enough, I... In my latest book, Opening the Doors of Perception, I have a whole section on schizophrenia. And I argue that with schizophrenics, the doors of perception are are wide open. Uh, The Blakey doors of perception to such an extent that they're experiencing the the collective universe, for want of a better term, in such a way that they, they, they they can't deal with it. Now, I have been approached by people who have experienced schizophrenia. I have been approached by individuals who have temporal lobe epilepsy. I've been approached by individuals who who have loved ones who have these experiences. And indeed, I invested the time. I worked for a year at uh, a school for uh, children who had epilepsy uh, and various other mental disorders. Um, for instance, children who had severe autism and such like. And I believe all of these in different ways open the doors of perception. But I think you're quite right. Schizophrenia 
is very, very peculiar. I, I spoke to one of the Britain's leading researchers into schizophrenia, and I asked him what exactly is schizophrenia from your point of view. And this guy had spent all his life studying schizophrenia, all his academic life, and he said, we haven't got a clue. I think it's a series of, of illnesses or neurological issues but you can't you can't consider it to be a, a singular a singular illness. So schizophrenia to me, people suddenly they seem to to fall out of time. They seem to have, and I have on this from friends of mine whose children are schizophrenic. They seem the children seem to time does not flow in the same way. The temporal flow can go backwards and forwards. They can flash forwards in their own time. They can flash backwards in their own time because they're disl- dislocated in time. You no, know, it, it breaks my heart to have to end this, but I'm afraid we're out of time. You can Sorry. be assured that we are proud to call you a colleague now, and we will be doing many more broadcasts. So thank you so much, and everyone, just give us, give us your website very quickly one more time. Okay, it's anthonypeak.com. That's Anthony with an H, and it's P-E-A-K-E. I'm also very active on Facebook, and there's various sites I have on there as well. Thank you guys for having me on the show. It's much appreciated. Absolutely I was really wonderful. We'll, we'll be in touch later today. Okay, Okay. wonderful. Thank okay, you so much. See ya. Right, bye-bye. Bye. bye. All right, everybody, Anthony Peak, absolutely amazing. Ben, take it away. Wow, after that, uh, our new book, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is now in bookstores everywhere, just in time for Hanukkah and Christmas, and that's a hint as well. Uh, It's also available on Amazon.com and the usual Internet suspects, too. So brew lots of coffee tonight because Ben and I will make another appearance on Coast to Coast AM with guest George, uh, I should say guest host George Knapp to talk about some of the 50 cases we recount in the new book. Uh, ben, by the way, was the youngest um, guest they ever had interviewed, uh, featured, uh, that was in 2010. You were 18 years old. Oh, yes. Um, so anyway, that's uh, on 624 radio stations from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. Eastern Time. Good luck. To us, um, across North America, 624 stations, you'd be surprised how many people listen to the radio at 4 o'clock in the morning. For our local audience, there are stations in Boston, Providence, and Worcester that will carry the show. If you go to coasttocoastam.com, you can find the whole list. And our official book launch event, sponsored by ON 1240 Radio, uh, for Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, will be held at the Cumberland Public Library on Diamond Hill Road, Cumberland, Rhode Island. And uh, that is this Thursday, December 1st, from 6 to 8 p.m. And uh, we will make a presentation. Books will be on sale. And uh, we will uh, sign them. Uh, for more information, visit www.behindtheparanormal.com or call the library at 401-333-2552, extension 128. And the uh, event is free, but registration is suggested and register by phone or online at cumberlandlibrary.org. You can click on the events tab, then scroll down to the, uh, December 1st, and there is a limit of 100 people, so please register now. Uh, two days later, on Saturday, December 3rd, uh, we will have our first bookstore event. That will be at the Book Club Store, 100 Main Street, Broadbrook, Connecticut. That will be from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. There will be no formal presentation, but it's a great group of people over there, so come hobnob and get your copy of the new book and any of my previous books. And on Thursday, December 29th, uh, we will do a presentation and book signing at the Winsocket Harris Public Library. That's 303 Clinton Street, Winsocket, Rhode Island, and that will run from 6.30 to 8 p.m. And check out our new YouTube channel. We just uh, made our fourth video. It should be up in a week or so. About that, yeah. Yeah, and... uh, Let's, uh, we're gonna have to skip, but just, there are a lot of events coming up, so just, uh, just stay tuned for that, as they say. Okay. Uh, next Sunday, December 4th, we'll plunge into the world of Thunderbirds, Mothmen, 
and other flying cryptids with author and researcher Linda Godfrey. And we leave you this afternoon with a thought from British poet, artist, and philosopher William Blake. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.